I wanted to talk about something that was um, that illustrated the history of medicine in a very real and practical way. So what I decided to do was do the history of DPT. Now, you are educators, and many of you probably are parents or those who have just gone to the doctor in the last number of years know DPT stands for that we give to kids and to adults, theory of pertussis and tetanus. And in some ways, it's a wonderful topic because this really highlights progress in medicine and infectious disease. I'm one of these people who likes PowerPoint, not because I like to read off it, but I think it's really powerful to have a discussion with images. So let me start off with the overview of my talk. I'm first going to talk about the three different infections pertussis, and tetanus. Then I'll talk about immunizations just in general. And then I'll talk about modern issues in summary. And this picture I really liked. I got it off the web. Thank you. Is um, taken from the WPA. It says, protect your child with toxoid. And it's from the Chicago Department of Health. So let me tell you a little bit about diphtheria. First of all, diphtheria was described by Hippocrates in the fourth century BCE. And during um, epidemics in the 17th century, especially in Spain, they called, and I don't speak Spanish, so if I butcher this, forgive me, El Garatillo, the strangler. And then epidemics in the late 19th century had case fatality rates of 42 to 47 percent. And what that means, about half of the people that get or got diphtheria would die from it. So it was very devastating, very dramatic, very powerful. And the group it targeted are really school-age kids from 4 to 10. Now, the organism that causes diphtheria is called Carinobacterium diphtheria. It's a gram-positive, non-modal, rod-shaped bacteria. And that just describes the bacteria in a microbiological way. It's named, it's got, it's named Carinobacteria for the Greek for club. And it was described by these two men, Edwin Klebs and Friedrich Luffler. And they used to call it the Klebs-Luffler bacteria. Now, when this was described at the end of the 19th century, it was really in the heyday of microbiology when they were first identifying the bacterial causes of many infections. And Klebs actually worked with a man named Virchow, who was a very famous person in, um, in Vienna. And Luffler worked with a man named Koch of Koch's postulates. And that's he was basically one of the founders of bacteriology. So identifying this organism of this terrible, life-threatening infection was a major advance in infectious disease. That was just the beginning. So what happens is this infection has a two to four day incubation period, meaning from the time you're exposed till the time you actually get the infection is a very short period of time. And you can imagine at home when you guys have been sick, you know, you don't feel good for a couple of days and then all of a sudden it blooms. So by four days, people can get this full-blown infection. And what happens is, the organism invades the throat and causes this development of a membranous exudate, meaning that this is a really wicked sore throat that gives you a real thickened, nasty um, infection all the way down the throat. And it also causes local invasion and sometimes can be so nasty it causes either a foul odor or a black mucosa. This is a wicked sore throat. The other important thing about the, the diphtheria is it, cause, it releases a toxin into the bloodstream. So the infection isn't just because you have this terrible sore throat. It's because the bacteria actually do something remote from the um, infection. 
So this is what I call pharyngitis 101. Pharyngitis is just the name we have for sore throat. And the most common causes of pharyngitis are things like viral causes, of which infectious mono is a cause. And those of you who teachers know that many of your students will have a red throat that can, that can be caused from either, bact uh, either bacteria like strep or more commonly viruses like mono. But diphtheria and pertussis and epiglottitis are some of the more serious causes of infection. And we rarely see these today. But the most common things we'll see are viral and uh, the, the strep or streptococcal infections. And typically, if you look in your throats or the throats of kids who have it, you see like white tonsils and exudates and things in the back. Any of you have actually done that? Whereas diphtheria is a much nastier infection. And I don't, I, my kids told me not to put pictures of this in because they thought it wouldn't be good first thing in the morning. But what happens is you really get this wickedly red throat. And actually, diphtheria was named um, by a Frenchman named Bretagne. Bretagne, I think is how you pronounce his name. And it's French, um, it's, it's taken from the Greek meaning hide because it looks like in the back of the throat, it's almost like a leather hide. It's a disease in the fall and winter. Most cases are uh, individuals under 15. And there were rates as high as 50,000 deaths at, per year at the early part of the century. So the incidents in 1921 there were 206,000 cases of diphtheria and less than five since 1980. So this is a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic decrease. Interestingly, on top of the endemic rate, meaning the prevalent rate, there are these epidemics. And sometimes during the epidemics, the, the death rate of the mortality was more than 50%. So it's been described in Spain as early as the 1600s, in New England in the 1730s, and the first president of Princeton, when it was first called the College of New Jersey, actually described an epidemic in New Jersey beautifully, and then in Western Europe in the late 19th century. So there's a, prep, uh, there's a kind of a low baseline rate, and then there are these terrible epidemics. And this is a picture by Francisco Goya that's supposed to be of a doctor examining a kid with diphtheria who had his fingers in the mouth to look at the back of his throat. What's that? Yeah, yeah, actually, you know what? The amazing thing is when you look at these things, even Osler, who's like the father of American medicine, who is a pathologist, it's so striking because he did these autopsies now, and you just see his hand cutting into, you know, like anatomic specimens. And from a modern perspective, it, it like kind of, it, it, it startles you because they had no masks and no gloves, and you knew why these people got sick all the time. So, but when I started looking into diphtheria, what I learned is that diphtheria is really the paradigm of modern diseases and of really success in infectious disease. And part of it is because this disease proved the germ theory of disease. It suggested the concept of a healthy carrier because from diphtheria, they actually learned that there are a certain number of people who have, carry the bacteria but don't have the full-blown infection. Because they learned about the toxin, it identified the concept of a filterable, non-transmissible agent. It taught us the usefulness of serology and finally the treatment of infectious disease. And it was so important that the very first Nobel Prize in medicine and surgery was given to this man, Emil von Behring, for his work on serum therapy. And he worked with a Japanese uh, collaborator named Kitasato, who I'll talk to you about in a minute, and worked in the lab of Robert Koch. So what did he do? And what's the real big 
advances in diphtheria, and why is diphtheria an interesting disease of the past? And here's the way, the conceptual way to understand it. First, they had this huge life-threatening infection of which they figured out the organism. And the organism was identified by, by Loeffler and Klepp. They were able to plate it out and grow it in a pure culture. From that, they were able to find out that there was a toxin. So you take the culture of these things and you kind of centrifuge them down. And they're in the liquid, there is a toxin that actually reproduces and recreates the infection. The toxin causes the disease. And so what happens with diphtheria, it's not just that they have a sore throat that causes them not to be able to breathe, but the infection actually causes neurologic symptoms and symptoms of weakness in the pharynx and the, they can't clear their secretions because they actually have muscle weakness. Or it can cause heart problems, give them myocarditis. So it's more than just a wicked sore throat. The toxin caused the disease. And so from understanding that toxin, they next came to the idea that maybe we could use antitoxin to help people who were acutely infected. So one of the first things they did was they got serum or blood from people who were recovering from diphtheria and tried to inject it to other people. And eventually what they did is they took that toxin, injected into a horse, took the serum off and gave it to people who were acutely ill with diphtheria, and that actually decreased the mortality rate. Now over time, you and I know that you don't want to give people other people's blood. So the way the vaccine was developed is they took this toxin and eventually through modifications by um, inactivating it with heat and formal and other compounds, we're able to change the toxin to what they call a toxoid. And vaccines now are made of toxoids. And toxoid is basically the diphtheria protein inactivated and changed in such a way that the body remembers and has an immune recall, but it doesn't trigger the whole diphtheria cascade because the last thing you want to do is give somebody the infection. So it took a while, and many investigators and a lot of scientific discovery to go from the toxin to the antitoxin to the toxoid. And so every now and then you'll hear people, when I, I'm a general intern, so I see patients for a living, and every now and then you ask people about their allergy, and they'll say they're allergic to horse serum. Who gets horse serum? The only people who get horse serum are people who years ago got these old antitoxins. And this was a cool picture from the web. So did that make sense? They got sick, and 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 so one of the fast. That's exact. It's a great, great point because one of the things they learned about in this whole cascade was serum sickness and the fact that when you give a foreign protein from another animal, you can get a whole nother layer of infection. So on one hand, it was useful and important. On the other hand, it wasn't without its problems. Was it done on animals and done on humans? I'll show you on both. Okay, so here is a, a picture. This was taken from the bullet in the history of medicine in 1999, but it's a picture from an article in 1885 talking about the fact that they would give horses small amounts of diphtheria toxin that were modified. And you can see this guy putting this into the horse, and they drew the serum off, and then they gave it to children. So there were horse and animal studies, and one of the fascinating things to me about diphtheria is how much medicine we've learned through these, you know, through this experimentation. And obviously, the serum, anti, you know, this antitoxin decreased the mortality by half, but it didn't take it away, okay? 
And we learned many things as we did that. And I'm saying me, we as the medical and scientific community, um, as we learned along the way. But it didn't cure it. But this was a huge thing. And here's a picture of somebody taking, um, showing images in medicine, the widespread popularity of therapeutic discoveries after 1885, and shows a doctor giving this serum to a, a young kid with bacteria. Now here's a picture, just I, I, I like these visuals. It's a picture of Eleanor Roosevelt, who is looking at a table, and in the back it says, save us from diphtheria. So it shows during her administration, this was still a big issue. Okay, so the diphtheria mortality rates have declined. And they declined even before the advent of these antitoxins. You can't see the, the graph beforehand. But before they had antitoxin, they had things like quarantine. And they had public health measures. And they separated the kids who were sick from those who were not. Now, there's all other ethical and social ramifications. But it actually caused the decline of diphtheria before the antitoxin, and then just think once the diphtheria vaccine was introduced in the 1920s, dramatic. And there's a whole other host of public health initiatives, including partnerships with insurance companies like Metropolitan Life and other partners that would not only support like these screening programs, but actually pay for vaccines. So it's a, one of the times when the insurance companies were on the side of the public health. One of the other things I learned when I was researching this about diphtheria is that the first intubation was done for the treatment of diphtheria. Intubation just means putting a tube in somebody's throat to open their airway. Now, any of you who've had general anesthesia are asleep, but know that when they put you to sleep, they have to put a tube in your throat to keep your airway open so that you can breathe while you're anesthetized. It was first done for diphtheria by this wonderful man named Joseph O'Dwyer who worked in New York with these kids, these um, orphans, and these kids with, you know, without any resources. The problem was diphtheria isn't just a mechanical problem. What happened is when he put these, and, and many kids actually survived because they were able to you know, breathe when their airway was compromised. The problem was this did actually nothing for the other toxin-mediated problems. And more than that, these kids had difficulty handling their secretions with a tube in their throat. So it was a great idea. Imperfect, but it's an important step in the history. And this is the other great thing I learned, is that the Iditarod dog sled race is run each year to commemorate the emergency delivery in 1925 of diphtheria antitoxin to Nome. Anybody see the movie Balto? That's a really sweet movie. I actually rented it this week, and my kids thought I was nuts. But it's about, and I'll tell you in a minute, about the, it's a fictionalized event uh, depiction of this dog sled race that brought diphtheria antitoxin to a, the remote town in Nome, Alaska. And it was taken from the, by these dogs. Actually, they went by train from Anchorage to Ninana, which is a small town in the middle of nowhere, and then to Nome. And eventually, this became a yearly race that commemorated this thing. And you can look, for those of you who are teachers and interested in looking for fascinating things, there's a lot of stuff on the web about this. And the dog named Balto, who was the lead dog here, there's actually a monument in Central Park to Balto. And that's how the movie starts with this grandmother who actually was a survivor of diphtheria showing her granddaughter Balto. But Balto's actually in like the Cincinnati Museum, I think, stuff because somebody really loved this dog and thought they should commemorate it. So let me tell you a little bit about pertussis. Pertussis is also called whooping cough or 100-day cough 
by the Japanese and Chinese. It's been known for many, many, many years. First described in 1578 in Paris, identified by this man, Jules Bordet, and his colleague. And he eventually won the Nobel Prize in 1919 for discoveries related to immunology. And the important thing about pertussis is we thought pertussis was gone. And I thought pertussis was gone until one of my colleagues developed it. And it just kind of opened my eyes. So they used to think it was a disease of childhood. It's airborne transmission. Humans are the only reservoir. And it can't survive outside the host. So the only way you get it is from contact with other people. Incubation period of about a week to 10 days. And there's an initial catarrhal period. That's an old medical term, meaning kind of a low-grade upper respiratory infection. And then eventually what happens is you get this episode of a cough. And the cough is like no other cough. I couldn't put it on, but if you look on the web and look at pertussis, you can actually, there are some websites that actually give you the sound of the cough. It's got this characteristic inspiratory whoop that you get at the end because you can't clear your secretions. And this cough lasts for weeks as you go into the convalescent period. That's why it's called the 100-day cough. And so the complications of pertussis are chronic cough, sleep disturbances, headache. This is just a subconjunctival hemorrhage. You know, if you cough enough, you can break a little blood vessel in your eye. But the problem is that sometimes kids and adults can get pneumonia. They can get seizures, which are terrible, or encephalopathy, which is an infection where the, the infection gets to the brain. So even though for most people it's a chronic cough, it's a bad thing. So now I'm just going to go briefly about tetanus. Tetanus is different than these other two infections. And it's different because it's not transmissible person to person. It's a soil organism. But the spores can live in the soil for years. And they can resist. They're very resistant. So if you want to get rid of tetanus, you have to autoclave something for like an hour at this ridiculously high temperature. So the spores are resistant to heat and chemical agents. The incubation period is 3 to 21 days. And the further the site of injury, the longer incubation period. Because what happens is the tetanus, I think I have a picture here. The tetanus organism elaborates this toxin that mediates the, the infection. And so what happens is you get these spasms of the jaw muscles and difficulty swallowing. And then you get abdominal muscle stiffness, difficulty breathing, and autonomic instability, meaning your blood pressure has wild swings. And there's a number of different kinds. There's localized, generalized. And the classic findings is this thing called rhizus sardonicus. When you get these muscle spasms over your face, it, it puts your face in this. Rhizus sardonicus, I think, means, if anybody knows Latin, like smile of the devil. And it's like this very painful, almost, it's, I, I couldn't find a picture that really captures it, but it's an unnerving smile from facial contraction. Now, the reason they call tetanus tetanus or actually, the, the common name is lockjaw. And what happens is people get spasms of the muscles here. And I'll show you the most dramatic picture, which is this thing called epistotonus. And this is a picture of a soldier who got tetanus. And remember, think about this. From time in memoriam, this is a soil organism. You get it from an infected wound. So soldiers are at great risk. Remember, these guys are in the, you know, they're injured. They're laying in the dirt. You know, they've got these terrible infections. And so what they've learned is that this is actually from a single toxin. And the toxin works the same as the poison strychnine. And so it actually blocks the acetylcholine release at the motor endpoint. And so it doesn't give you flaccidity or weakness. It stays depolarized. 
and that the spinal cord is the primary organ and then it can affect the central nervous system and lead to seizures or clearly you can imagine somebody with that kind of posture could easily die. And this also was described in, in by Hippocrates and it was the association between a convulsion and a wound, an infected wound that led to neurologic problems. And then eventually in the late 19th century, again, they, they developed tetanus by injecting soil samples into animals. And then this man who worked with Baring, the person who got the first Nobel Prize, actually isolated the organism from a fatal soldier. And tetanus, because it's a soil organism, is anaerobic, meaning it doesn't use oxygen. So it took them a while to figure out how to grow this without oxygen. This was scientifically tricky. But these guys, Emil Baring and um, Kitasato, actually were the first people who actually worked on these antitoxins for these common and terrible infections. So just to give you a perspective, the case fatality rate now is 10%. People who get it in the United States can be treated. Uh, and it declined from 30 to 50%. So about half of the people who got tetanus, and you can imagine if you were in that position, in the middle of nowhere, you could die. As late as the 1940s, there were about five or 600 cases per year. And in 2003, there were only 20 reported cases. And some of these were just localized tetanus. Now, the problem is as people get older, their immunity wanes. And so one of the recommendations for all people over 50 is to get a tetanus shot every 10 years. With all the other immunizations that people over 50 are supposed to get, sometimes that moves to the bottom of the list because it's not a common disease. When we think about people 50 and over, and I'm in the 50 crowd, so I feel comfortable telling you about that. The, the big um, immunizations that people worry about are flu and pneumococcal vaccines. Those are the more common ones because those are more prevalent and current conditions. But the other thing I learned when I did this talk is that neonatal tetanus is an incredible cause of death worldwide. And what happens is it's caused by contamination of the umbilical cord with spores through the use of non-sterile instruments or the application of animal dung to the cut core. And some you know, isolated tribes actually do that, and it actually causes a great deal of death. So here's the good part of the talk. So back in 1914, Bordet used whole cell cultures of pertussis to actually do the first immunization. And over the next number of years, diphtheria toxoid was um, developed and then tetanus toxoid, and then in 47, we started getting the DT, the diphtheria tetanus, and then in 1948, we started giving people the DPT, and then in 1996 to 98, we started giving the DTAP, and I'll tell you about these in a minute. So diphtheria tetanus is obvious. Now, what's the <coughs> DTAP? Well, what happened was the whole cell pertussis vaccine actually had some complications, a low rate of very, very severe and terrible neurologic symptoms where the little kids could have seizures or like this flaccidity where they would be cut, they'd lose tone and they'd get high fevers. And so even though the relative rate of it was let's say one in a million, because every kid gets these vaccines because they get five vaccines as a child, they went to this acellular pertussis, which is without the whole pertussis organism and kind of a derivative of it. And that's actually led to much less complications from this. So here's just the current recommendations. So little kids, there's five immunizations 
It used to be DPT, and they changed it to the DTAP, diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis. And I have two teenage kids who just got this immunization yesterday. So years ago, with teenagers, they were just given the diphtheria and tetanus. Now they added the pertussis, because we're seeing it again. So this is when we give the immunization two, four, six months, then 15 to eight months, and then four to six years. So by the time the kids are school age, they have, and this is only one immunization. Remember, they're getting an MMR. They're getting hepatitis B. They're getting Haemophilus influenza. They're getting polio. So the kids get a lot of immunization. So what the, the reason that this talk is timely is this past year, in 2005, they actually changed the recommendations for adolescents not to just get the diphtheria and tetanus, but to get this diphtheria tetanus with the pertussis and this inactivated pertussis. So why am I talking about this? That's all interesting, well and good. You just get a DPT shot, forget about it, right? You know, it's mundane. So here's the reason I'm talking about it. First of all, diphtheria is not gone. And this is a World Health Organization table that shows that, and this is 1980, 10 incidents of 10 per 100,000 in the brown and in many of these other areas where they still have diphtheria. But what's most fascinating is diphtheria incidents in Russia, okay, in, at the, was very high in the first half of the century with 750,000 cases in the 1950s. And this is a picture by Margaret Burke White, you know, the famous photographer. And the immunization program was begun in the 20s under Stalin's era and only fully implemented in 1958 universal immunization. So the Russians did a good job of immunizing their people. But the problem is, all of a sudden, there was this diphtheria epidemic in Russia in 1994 and 1995, where there were more than five, more than 50,000 cases coming down from you know a handful. Now, what was that all about? And so, if you know, in that orange bibliography, there's a wonderful article. If anybody's really interested in the Journal of Emerging um, Infections, on what the social conditions were that led to this recurrence of this diphtheria epidemic. So part of it is the fact that there was population resistance to vaccinating children. There were changes in the vaccination schedule, high levels of militarization, which both disrupt the social order and money gets taken out of healthcare to go to the army. The other thing that was very fascinating is there's changing in the biotype. So remember, there are certain kinds of, um, sometimes there are certain bacteria that have certain more aggressive virulence. That's just an innate property of the bacteria. And that happened in Russia. The other thing is high crowding and intense urbanization, substandard housing. Decreased immunization in Central Asia and a lot in the Caucasus. And a lot of these newly, you know, uh, independent republics like, you know, Azerbaijan and all these smaller states. And then finally, repatriation of people moving all over the place, going from one part of Russia to another. The social context affected how many people got immunized, whether there were adequate immunizations, so it caused this diphtheria epidemic. And if you look at the CDC website, and sometimes that's fun because they've got great resources, cdc.gov, there's a whole bunch of information that's at the level of physicians and patients and public health. You can see, if you look at diphtheria, there are still places that there are recommendations of to be aware that these are prevalent conditions. So one of the reasons I got interested in this talk is I told you one of my good friends, who was a colleague of mine and a specialist, said, I think I've got pertussis. And I'm like, well, what did you think you've got pertussis? He said, 
you know, I started with this cold and I've got this cough and I'm doing this whooping thing. And so when I actually looked into it, there has been a huge increase in the number of pertussis cases. And what it's thought is that we used to think that your immunity lasted your whole life. And now we realize that after about five or 10 years, it wanes. And so that there's this whole population of people who may not be adequately immunized and can transmit it. And look, and Illinois turns out to have had, this is from a friend, one of um, the ID fellows who works at U of C gave me this about in Cook County, the number of pertussis cases in 2004, which went from like, you know, a handful to 250. And here's another interesting thing is that the population of people who have it are 10 to 14. And remember, we're immunizing kids, or we were, four to six was the last time they got a DPT shot. And then when they're teenagers, they were getting the DT shot. We forgot the pertussis. And what happened is, bang, these kids were getting pertussis. So the recommendations now have changed that teenagers are now getting this DTAP, like the version of the DPT shot. But there may be down the pike the recommendations that instead of every 10 years to get a tetanus and diphtheria shot, to get a tetanus, diphtheria, and this inactivated pertussis. And I'll tell you, the next time I get a tetanus shot, I'm getting the DTAP shot. Because the problem with this friend of mine was, this is such a disruptive cough. I mean, people really feel the sense they can't breathe, and kids can die from it. It's not just a, a chronic cough. I mean, it's a wicked cough. So here's the heartbreaking story about neonatal tetanus. So since the tetanus immunizations have become standard of practice and widespread, there have only been two cases of neonatal tetanus in the United States since 1989. But according to the World Health Organization, there's 164,000 cases and 110 deaths. Now the reason I show you this picture is, anybody pick up a newborn baby? You know, any of you have babies? Babies are floppy. You can't do this to a newborn baby. This implies that the tone of this baby is very rigid because they're being held like this. A normal baby will just fall out of your arms. In the 28 countries that account for 90% of neonatal cases, 16% are in Africa. And these vaccine rates in some places have been as low as 30 to 35%. Now remember, you're not immunizing the babies. You're immunizing the mothers. Neonatal tetanus occurs. They say it's a seven-day infection three to 10 days after birth. And here show, showing the, the number of cases has gone down as the immunization rates, and this is the rates, the official coverage of the World Health Organization has gone up. And the problem is the people that most need it, the women who most need, and you just need two tetanus shots while you're pregnant, and the tetanus does cross the, cross the placenta, and the antitoxin is safe. The problem is these people are in remote places that are hard to get to, very, very hard to get to. And you know what? In terms of the big cosmic infections that people get, you've got AIDS, you've got TB, you've got malaria. Neonatal tetanus is not on everybody's radar, but it's heartbreaking to know that just because somebody was born in another country that half of the kids who get this infection can die. It's, it's terrible. And so here's just a table of what they call protection at birth, and the areas of red meaning that the mothers, less than 60% of the mothers are actually covered, and you can see where these things are located. And so for those of you who don't have socialist tendencies, you realize that the political not only becomes personal, but becomes medical. And when, when countries, when their infrastructure is torn apart or when there's war, that's how it impacts people in many different ways. So I'm perfect timing. I want to just wrap up with my perspective of this and then give you all plenty of time to ask me questions. 
So the way I look at this is that scientific progress in infectious diseases is one of the major advances in modern medicine. I mean, this is really a success story. The fact that my colleagues in pediatrics don't see diphtheria like they did in 19, the early in the 19th century is amazing. As a matter of fact, I was reading something that in Index Medicus, you know, Index Medicus is the index of all medical journals. In 1892, 1%, one out of every 100 articles was written on diphtheria. You know, it, <laughs> nothing like that. Immunizations have dramatically decreased the, rate, decreased the rates of infectious disease, and many of them have been associated with reduced pediatric mortality, which has caused increased life expectancy. Remember, pediatric and neonatal mortality is one of the big things that affects life expectancy. Neonatal is considered the first 30 days, you know, newborns the first year, and so the more kids that die there, it brings down the whole population's life expectancy. But here's the important point in the take-home message for all of us, is the return of preventable diseases, like diphtheria, is associated with lowered immunization rates, often reflecting disruptions in social networks, whether that's from a political issue or social concerns or any of these things. And that's why when people cut funding to public health, it can really impact people in a huge way. The other thing is that scientists, like people in the CDC and World Health Organization, monitor the epidemiology of disease closely along with the vaccine efficacy. And it was only really looking at these vaccine rates to know that one of the reasons that pertussis is back is because this efficacy has waned. And then throughout the West, in the West, and throughout the world, these vaccine recommendations continue to evolve. And I'll just end there and leave it open for questions. Thank you. Because Tetanus is a soil organism. When people are, you know, um, you know, a dirty nail or a rusty nail can actually, and a lot of times these, the, the ones in the United States are actually from puncture wounds. So it is important. And if you go to the emergency room and you get any kind of, you know, any dirty instrument in a wound, they'll give you a tetanus shot. Concerning the, um, the evolving of the immunizations? Is it because the organism is evolving, therefore we have to continue on getting more vaccinations? It's not lifelong no more? Is well, it similar to like the, inf like the flu virus where it has different varying strains? Or? Okay, you know, it, part of both is true. Okay, in some cases what we're learning is that the, <clears throat> the idea that immune, immune status or that our immune levels are gonna be lifelong maybe a little naive. And so especially um, in something like pertussis, we think that if you give the last time that the kids are six and you get this infection in the 30, you may not be able to mount an appropriate immune response. But in something like diphtheria, one of the reasons that there was this epidemic was there was a change in the strain and that the infection, the organism itself became very, very pathogenic. And a similar thing has happened in rheumatic fever. Strep infections are still very, very common. You know, we see them all the time. And yet the rates of rheumatic fever have dropped and people think it's related to changes in the organism. So it can go both ways. So both are important, you're right. I'm sure they do. I didn't look at that, but I'm sure in the wake of any of these natural disasters, you know, some of the early things that happen is the water system gets polluted so that there are, like for instance in, um, like this is something I know a little bit from what happened in, her, you know, the hurricane area in, um, in New Orleans and in uh, Mississippi, is one of the things that got very high quickly was actually skin infections. 
because people were walking in contaminated water. And here they got water flown in, you know, pretty quickly, bottled water. But what happens in places that are more remote, one of the early things you get are these enteric infections, people, because you get contaminated stool in the drinking water. I wouldn't be surprised if many of these preventable infections. But remember, pneumonia increases any time people get malnourished or sick. So that's actually, it's both from the weather and the inclemency and also when people, like people who have malnutrition, they die of pneumonia. They don't die of the malnutrition. Oh, I just wanted to know how a dog bite relates to a detective shot when you go into the emergency room. Anytime you have a bite that's part of the um, prof that's part of kind of their prophylaxis is any open wound that's dirty, they'll give that to you as, as an opportunity. In reality, the likelihood of actually getting a true tetanus infection from a dog bite is probably small. The other way to think about it is in the emergency room, they're looking at opportunities to kind of intervene. So it's you know, even if it's a very small risk best practice to make sure people are updated, but likely it's small. Hi, um, I just have a quick question. I wanted to know if there was like a difference between like pertussis and maybe like a upper respiratory infection, because I think like some of the symptoms are kind of similar, but not necessarily might not be caused by the same thing. Absolutely. And you know, that's a great question. What happens in most upper respiratory infections is that you get and it depends on the organism, but just your average pharyngitis. Typically starts with not feeling well, you get a low-grade fever, maybe you get joint aches. Sometimes it starts with what they call coryza, which is, you know, kind of stuffiness in the head and throat, and then it settles in the throat. The difference between pertussis is that what happens is it goes into this long, very specific kind of cough that has a whoop. Because most of the time, even when people have a chronic cough, they just cough intermittently because the air tickles their throat or they get this thing called a post-viral bronchitis. It's the classic finding of this inspiratory stridor, like, <gasps> I mean, they fit, I, I can tell you, and see if you can, when you get home, look on the web, see if you can hear it. They actually have sounds. It's a very classic and unique thing, and it also causes a protracted cough. So what happens, people don't usually come in before it's been going on for two to three weeks, and all of a sudden they say, this is just not going away, and some of the recommendations in the literature for adults is think about it and somebody's had a cough for two weeks that's not going away. Pertussis is a small number of upper respiratory infections because most of the time you get a flu or a URI, you know, a week or two, your cough is getting better or tapering off. The other thing is flus can trigger asthma. So there's a lot of asthma around. Remember that people can have what they call cough-variant asthma that's nothing that will cause a chronic cough. But most colds go away in a week or two or 10 days. So that's Okay, um, so the DPT immunization is the shot that has the antitoxins or detoxides for the three strains. So if it has for those three different, is it, it's not a mixture that works for both, for all three, it's three different things no, that's it's put together. No, it's what they did is they, they made one, um, let me just show it to you because they have, it's, um, it's a, a single um, shot that you can, um, that gets just as a, they put them all together in one, little vial when you get it at one time. Okay, so how come they don't have a lot of mixtures like that for okay, all the kinds of immunizations? Okay, that's a great question. Here's, here's a picture of the one that they have. Part of it is that, in, okay, so this thing is the diphtherium tetanus toxoid, 
and the acellular pertussis. So they have this little vial, they draw it up in a needle. Now remember, you're giving people, and like if you bring your kids to the doctor, they get the DPT in one arm, they get the MMR in another, they get the inactivated polio virus. What happens is, sometimes if you put too many things in the shot, you don't develop an adequate immune response. So there's a lot of data looking at which things are okay together and which things are not. Obviously, the great thing would be to have one shot where you get covered for everything. But the problem is that you don't necessarily get adequate titers to protect you long term. And so it's not beneficial to give somebody a combination of things where one thing inactivates another. But I can tell you that they're looking at that because the more that they can get into one immunization, these kids need shots. And so the less you could give, the better. Sometimes they can get a localized, um, my kids just have a little localized infection, but allergies are in a small percentage. Sometimes people can. Uh, one of my students <clears throat> are, was a freshman in high school and got mono. And I guess that compromised his immune system because he developed whooping cough from, from the, after the mono. And uh, I didn't, his parents, um, isn't there a group of parents that believe that the DP, is it the DPT shot uh, causes autism? Okay, there's a, that, and I didn't review that. There's, there's interest, one of, the one of the controversial areas in vaccinations is this kind of rise of autism at the same time there's this widespread immunization. Some people think it's related to thimerosal, which is a mercury-containing stabilizer in the vaccine, but that's actually a very, an area of a lot of controversy. Um, if it's proven, it will clearly, clearly, clearly cause changes in the um, recommendations. And I can tell you that the change in the pertussis, if you want to read something, there's a, a reference on the web called The Tainted History of the DPT Vaccine talking about the controversy of how it took a while to change the pertussis component, even though there were some kids that had very serious reactions. That's a whole other talk, the area of both drugs, marketing drugs, things like that, um, drugs and medicine. Okay, I had asked my um, son's pediatrician the same thing. How come they didn't give all the shots at one time? Because you know that's awful to look at a small child to get all of those shots. But he said because you had to narrow it down to the reactions. Is that it? I think part of it, but there's another whole literature on the fact that certain combinations together can inactivate the other thing. So even in adults, like let's say you're traveling, they don't give all the same immunizations at one time. They have to parse them out because some of these don't allow you to develop an adequate antibody response. But I can tell you people who are in the vaccine business would love to have like it, it taper down because over time, we're immunizing people against more and more vaccines, you know. Hepatitis B, which is something that I got immunized as a healthcare worker, now is the requirement to go to school. And Haemophilus influenza, which has been a, a organism for years, just got, in, you know, started. So now with the number of vaccines that are recommended, and my kids, uh, my teenager, they wanted to give them a meningitis vaccine. They just didn't happen to have. So I know that over time they're going to try to put these vaccines together to decrease the number of immunizations and yet still make sure that the kids are protected and develop the adequate antibody response. Because at the end of the day, if you give a vaccine and they don't develop protective immunity, then you're both wasting time and resources traumatizing the kids and not getting the effect you need. So it's a total lose-lose. So that's my understanding. 
Thank you very much. Okay, thank you.